0: If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. I am Brandon Zek.
1: Hello, I am Leslie Moody Castro.
0: And today, this is our summer art news roundup. So there's been a lot that's been happening both in Texas kind of and the larger, wider art world this summer. Some stuff that maybe you've heard about, but Maybe you haven't if you kind of don't follow the larger, wider art news, but stuff that might affect you or at least uh, you might be curious about. So this is going to be a roundup. We have three main different topics that we're going to talk about. Um, Some of them, even if they're not necessarily specific to Texas, the news that's been happening, we have ways to tie them into Texas also. So with that, I'm not going to do any more preamble. Let's just get into it. So
1: let's jump in.
0: Topic number one is – this is news that came out really at the beginning of summer. It came out in June, at the very beginning of June. But Sotheby's, the auction house, has bought the Breuer Building, which was the home of the Whitney Museum of Art from 1966 to – 2015 um if you visited the whitney museum of art anytime in there you have seen this building um it's this big brutalist building on the upper east side on madison avenue um kind of in it's i almost kind of think of it i don't know if it technically is but as the start of museum row like much farther north you end up having you know the met and the guggenheim but it's also very near um the flagship Gagosian Gallery, which opened, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, probably in the 90s or 2000s, um, but on Madison Avenue. So this building um, was let go, or the Whitney still owned it, but they moved out of it in 2015 into their new Renzo Piano designed building in the meatpacking district. So they moved pretty far south. Uh, west on the island of manhattan um and then they leased it to the metropolitan museum of art for six years and the met presented exhibitions of contemporary art throughout the building as the met Breuer. and then after the met got into some financial problems um they kind of let their lease go and then the whitney started to lease it to the frick collection uh which is normally housed in a crazy Gilded Age mansion on Fifth Avenue, but currently that mansion is undergoing renovation. So the big thing about the Frick is that work never tends to leave the mansion and it's now being shown in the Whitney just for a short period of time. So with that, it seems like the Whitney decided it was finally time to let the museum go. They didn't want to be landlords anymore. The big question is who's going to buy a historically designated landmark museum building? I guess, of course, the answer is an auction house um leslie what was your thought about this when you saw it come through
1: um i guess i guess I, i'm not terribly surprised by it i mean if there is any way if sotheby's as an auction house can obviously afford something like this um, i don't see it as something particularly positive or negative for that matter i i think that um as a private auction house and as a commercial entity Sotheby's can probably have more control in terms of keeping the building up, as far as like upcape of a building and like keeping it um doing renovations on it making sure that it's still you know it, it functions it works it's protected um yeah and I guess I guess we could kind of also compare this to like to museums that have multiple locations, kind of like the contemporary that has to juggle Laguna Gloria and the Jones Center. Um, which I think that the you know, these massive institutions it's so it's so hard to run the ship of these massive institutions that it doesn't it's not surprising to me that eventually it's just like, no, it's not working. Like it's time to downsize, it's time to consolidate the collection. Um it's time to like bring it back into into one house. Um I guess for me, it's more the gesture of a of an auction house purchasing it is kind of more of a conceptual red flag. Um, but at the same time, like the commercial auction house can probably take care of it a lot better.
0: Yeah, I think your reaction was pretty on par with everything I was hearing when this story came out, and I I, I kind of agree with you. Like I'm a little indifferent about it, but my big question to everyone who was outraged about it is, who's going to buy this building? Is it going to be a billionaire who wants to open their own private art museum? Well, that would kind of be the only other possible client that I could imagine because it's a weird building. It's brutalist. It's designed to be a museum building, so you would have to do major renovations on it in order to turn it into livable uh offices that people would actually you know want to use as an office building and the building is historic like a landmark protected to some extent so um or it's in a landmark protected district so there there are complications around anyone who would want to buy the museum and do major things to the property or to the building itself well
1: um and to add to that too, like if it goes back into private hands, like if the collector were to purchase it, then you know the public would lose access to it, and granted, that is happening in some ways with Sotheby's purchasing it but i I think that it's the loss of access wouldn't is not going to be as as great as if one individual purchased it, for example, unless that individual was wealthy enough to just be like this is this building is open to the public for forever, and what are the odds of that, you know?
0: Yeah, well, and it would have to be, like, it would have to be a major gesture for an individual to do that and open some sort of public institution, be it their own collection or if someone was underwriting an institution. Apparently, when uh, the Met was operating the Breuer, it cost about $17 million a year to run. So it's just as a build, you know, it's a 1966 building. Like, this building itself is more than 50 years old at this point. Like it's not a young building. It's not a new building. It's gonna require care. And I I mean, of course this is a strategic like investment of that Sotheby's is doing. Like it's they're able to show art for auction in a building that was designed to show art, but also in a building that has this rich history. You you can imagine the press releases that are going to happen about like, this artwork is returning to the Whitney after it had been out of the museum for 40 years, and it's like going to be a piece from a show from the 1970s. Um, It's going to be sold for millions of dollars that will be hyped up because it's going to be brought back to the Whitney. Well,
1: and like... You know, it's been there since 1966. That's a pretty great run.
0: <laughs> yeah, as a public institution. <laughs> yeah, that's a and, pretty
1: great run, and this building is going to have a great new life.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe I'm an optimist, but I just, like, I really agree with you that I'm glad it's going to retain some sort of public-facing presentation or the ability for the public to come and see it, even though, I mean, Sotheby's is open to the public to the extent that the public can come and preview the auction that's about to be sold into private hands and probably never seen again. And that will remain the case at the Whitney, which in some ways it's almost going to be like a mausoleum that you're going to have the open viewing before the coffin is shut. But in another sense,
1: that's a really good analogy. <laughs> it's kind of uh,
0: macabre, but in the other sense, like, This is a wonderful building to see art in. I have never seen a show in the Breuer building that looks bad. I thought it would be weird to see the Frick collection in the building, but the Frick collection looks amazing. It's the the brutalism of it and the like tiled suspended concrete ceiling and the different textures of the floors. Like I've seen multiple shows in this building and it just it makes art look good or art makes the space look good i don't know i think oftentimes it's both happening to each other um
1: well and this is also like it's also a sign of the fact that people have been in this building for so long right like it takes time to understand space and you can see that like I think that that's a testament as well to like the communication between architects and designers and directors when this was built. Right. So it's like, how do we, how do we make a museum that's meant to be a museum in perpetuity, um, where all the art looks good and everything is positive and everything's working with each other. Like, that's a great, that's a great positive for this building. And, um, it is great that it can continue to be an art space or an art house in some capacity. Um, there's a lot of talk about renovating the lobby, and so it sounds like that lobby area will be something that has more access more regularly rather than just going into the, the auction house preview rooms. I don't know if I, as a visitor, would—I would, would <laughs> I think I would be very intimidated to do that, to go into the Sotheby's and just be like, Hey, can I see the auction house viewing rooms before the auction goes live? Um, but it is nice to at least have a certain amount of access to it, especially in a space that, in that one particular space of the lobby that is so iconic.
0: Yeah. And like the, the auction houses said that they're going to quote, they're committed to preserving the integrity of what's loved about the building, which includes that lobby. But of course they're going to do what they do and they're going to create a sales room. And I think some of it might end up being offices if I remember correctly. And like, it's it's going to it's not going to be the building that it was um but then again the it, it feels as if over the past couple of years at least since the Whitney moved out it's always been a little precarious because first it was the mets and then the met let their lease up and they were like well so it's like what was going to happen to it then and then the frick is only a temporary thing because the frick isn't going to occupy it for forever so i mean I, I i wonder how much of this also is the Whitney just being like oh we're about to be out a tenant and we have no clue who we could rent this out to so we better get rid we better dump it now because if they're not able to rent it out, it will just be sitting there taking up space and eating at their budget and they sold it for we don't know the exact number, but the approximations are about a hundred million dollars, which weirdly for an iconic piece of architecture and museum and art history like this, it seems. Like, a lot of money, but also it seems like very little money for a significant piece of property in, like, the Upper East Side Manhattan.
1: Yeah, I would say $100 for the size of the property and the location. I mean, like, yes, of course it's important and iconic, and it's an important piece of architectural art history, but let's just look at the numbers of real estate. You know, like, that is not hundred million, yes, is significant. It's not like I have a hundred million in my bank account, but you know for what it is and where it is that's that seems kind of reasonable,
0: yeah, I completely agree i I thought it would be much
1: higher mm-hmm. and I honestly think that um you know running an institution is like hemorrhaging money, and so it's especially if you own two buildings that you like there's there's so few things that can happen in these buildings, right It's not like it's not like they can rent it out to a, a restaurant or turn it into a retail or something. It's it's a very particular use. And it makes sense that after the building has been in flux for so many years, the Whitney can just offload it and, you know, put some money in their own bank accounts. So we'll see where that money goes. And and then, you know, it just seems like a, it seems like in a way it seems like a win-win. However, it does seem, it is, it, again, I go back to that, like kind of being indifferent about you know if it's good or bad um it just yeah it just seems like okay the to, at least it's going to an art something um and at least part of it will be accessible if you had a hundred million dollars <laughs> and you could buy this building what would you uh-huh. do <laughs>
0: well would have to have a lot more than hundred million dollars to make buying the building worth it.
1: I mean, this is a good point because it's not just a hundred thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's not just a hundred million. It's million, the operating sorry. and the crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Um, there could have been a really cool consortium of like collectors who have amazing private collections who would want to form a foundation to put all of their works on public view and make a really cool private museum. Like I think this building would be bigger than a single private collector. It would be a significant corporate collection. Um, I'm thinking about like the foundation Louis Vuitton or like, uh, like the Prada foundation, like things like that Um, or a consortium of private collectors. But that would also require a lot of collaboration and a lot of stuff that a lot of folks don't really want to do and taking on a lot of, um, taking on a lot of debt or just losing a lot of money. But I think that, that would be the only other thing that I could see really working for this space.
1: I mean, what you just described is a whole other nonprofit.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It would be a, well, it would be a revolutionary addition to New York's museum scene. Mm -hmm. It's true. Which,
1: but then there would also be the situation in which, you know, collectors would have to give up some independence of their own collections and, yeah, I don't no one wants to do that no one wants to do that
0: <laughs> no one wants to put their stuff on the walls next to the people they're bidding against at Sotheby's um, and be like here's what I have and here's what they have and then of course inevitably it would be like well this person's collection is much better than this other person's and it's represented in the museum and it would just it would be a whole it would be a, a whole
1: whole thing. thing and imagine like that day where you know you've got something on the walls of the building and then the collector's like oh by the way I'm gonna have an event I'm gonna need that back yeah you know so it's yeah. it's yeah th- that's a whole thing that's a great idea, and it would be it would be so cool to see that happen, but it would be a nightmare.
0: It's something that would have to be both funded by and shielded from its patrons. Um, with that, I think I think uh, that's a good uh, segue into our next topic, which is uh, news that came out again over the past couple of months that both the Whitney Museum in New York and the Guggenheim in New York have increased prices of their admissions. So. This has been a trend, um, really, over the past couple years, ever since COVID. So the Guggenheim raised its prices from $25 to $30. Um, For context, from a New York Times article, when the Guggenheim opened in 1959, the museum charged 50 cents for admissions. So adjusted for inflation, that would be $5.20 dollars compared to the 30 that it now is. Um they're also charging students $19 for admissions now. The Whitney also raised prices to $30 for adults. It was previously 25, so same level as the Guggenheim and $24 for students and seniors, uh, previously from 18. So apparently in both of these cases there's been um, some declining admission, or at least declining from pre-pandemic levels. You know, they haven't fully been able to gain an audience back. Uh, I think in both cases, there might also be some um, working with union contracts and probably increased operating costs., um, Of course, there's a bunch of inflation that's been happening over the past couple of years, but this has just been kind of a wider trend. like, the Met Museum of Art in New York famously started charging people admissions, whereas before it was uh, pay-what-you-wish, so that's now $30 also. Um, the Philadelphia Museum of Art increased prices. The Art Institute of Chicago increased prices, it is now apparently one of the most expensive art museums with a $32 ticket for out-of-state visitors, and... Um, this is this is a wider conversation also, but we were thinking about this in relation to Texas museum prices, because this has been a really real thing for us in the state. It's hard to kind of track um, price inflation because it just happens, and then it's almost like a flashbulb memory. You're like, wait, didn't that used to be cheaper? Um
1: I remember when, like, I was, you know, walking into some museums that initiated a um, an entry fee, and I was like, "Wasn't this free before?" (laughs) I've done that many times.
0: It's an interesting case study of what can happen and where the future is going. Because whenever I go to any museum, including our museums in Texas, I always think about what would it cost for a family of four that didn't have a membership to come and visit this institution, and oftentimes in texas or elsewhere it's either at or over a hundred dollars it's a lot of money
1: and you know it's it's also like kind of what we were just talking about like the cost of running these big ship institutions like it's it's expensive and the labor that that is involved in it from like the art handlers to the curators to the researchers it's just there's so much involved with it and like i mean i always i like think in circles about this because i'm like why do we do this (laughs) Why do we, why do we have these massive institutions? Like, why can't we piece them apart or something? Because it's like, this is so much money. And yeah, just thinking about the cost of a family going to see art and having this experience that is very regulated in many ways, because it's not like the kids can just like run around in the galleries. And then as you were talking, um, I wrote down, think of Meow Wolf prices, and that sort of experience, and that kind of is like, you know, we sort of snub our nose at these sort of entertainment factor things, and like, you know, like the Guggenheim, or not the Guggenheim, the Van Gogh light shows, and the Frida Kahlo, like, immersive experience things, but at the same time, um, museums also came from this idea of, like, an experience, of, like, showing things off, kind of like the circus, like the history is aligned with that, and so, I don't know, it's just as one of those things where, like, i it just is so expensive to go to these institutions, and I could see it being a price barrier, especially for like as I know there's um in one of the hyperallergic articles that we read about this it's, it mentions that cost isn't the main barrier for people going to the museums, but I can't imagine that like that has to be real that barrier,
0: yeah, I feel like maybe it's a thing that's that doesn't present as much in studies like uh, i i think either in that article or in one of the other studies it talked about things like transportation issues and you know some of these other or time issues or people just who might have the capacity and time simply choosing to do other things as like elements of leisure um which i see being the case but there was a really interesting quote from one of the articles about from um the director of the fabric workshop in Philadelphia, which I believe is free. Um, And he said the museum format is antithetical to how some people are used to getting culture. And he mentioned how you can basically get music for free on your phone or, you know, maybe a $10 a month. Well, even the Spotify price has gone up recently, but You can get it for under, yeah, you can get it for under $15 access to any music you want, or you can just stream it for free on YouTube Um, versus going to a museum for double that. Uh, It's a museum. You can't do it for the whole month. You can only do that for one day. And even then you're probably only going to be in there for three to four hours, max, before you decide you're tired and you leave. Like it's a, Three to four hours.
1: I get two before I'm like, I want to sit down.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, it's an interesting way to think about the economy or like the price per hour. Like, I mean, I, I, I feel like some consumers, I feel like I do this occasionally. It's like the, what is this worth to me? Like is an hour uh, of what I'm getting paid for an hour of work? How many hours of work is this thing going to cost me?
1: I absolutely do that. Yeah. I think that way as well. Um, and of course, you know, I very rarely go to New York. I really don't go very often at all. Like it's been years and years. Um, and so, you know, of course, in that moment, yes, the going to these museums and paying for them, it would be a huge hit because it's expensive. And if I'm hitting up five museums in a day that are $30 each, that's a lot. Um, and then, you know, if I want to have a $20 beer afterwards and, you know, add that to the price ticket too, Um So, yeah, it is a lot. But like um, I guess my other question then becomes, you know, is it worth it to become a member of that sort of national museum thing or become a member of these places individually? Does that actually make a difference?
0: So there was a really interesting uh, tweet that I saw just kind of in relation to this that said (laughs) this would be written about a lot more if uh, arts writers didn't have press passes and had to pay each time they went to a museum, which I do you think is completely accurate and is one of the reasons that i wanted to talk about this like i am very fortunate you know we at glass tire most of the time can get into institutions for either very reduced um fees or completely free because we're press and because it's our job to visit these institutions uh but if i always i think all the time that if i didn't work for glass tire or if i didn't have a press pass i would be buying a yearly membership to the mfah because if you visited the museum once or twice in a year you would be paying more than you would for a membership um
1: is that yeah and is that the incentive then
0: i think that is probably the incentive and i think sometimes sometimes even though many museums do push membership sometimes people don't realize that um and it's it's just a hard it's it's a hard thing because you also you're not going to sit there at the admissions desk and start doing math about like well okay do i want to come back and visit wait what do y'all have on view you know three months from now am i going to want to see that show like visitors generally aren't going to take the time to do that you don't want to hold up the people behind you in line like if you don't really put in your research you will just end up paying much more than you would by buying admissions um
1: I had a recent experience where, you know, I um, I went to the Nasher, which I love. I love the Nasher and everyone working there. And I realized that I didn't have a um, a membership to the Nasher, which was fine. I was like, oh, I should sign up for this. I'll just get one of like the artist membership or whatever, the writer membership. And as I was signing up, um, whomever was helping me said, oh, here are all your perks. And she was just like saying a bunch of things of all the, the member perks um, at that level And I was sort of tuning out, not really paying attention. There was a lot going on around, as you said. People were there. People were trying to come in. um, And there was an event happening. And then she said, oh, also you get free parking at the DMA parking lot. And I was like, what? Give me two. (laughs) It's like, that is a perk. I want that perk. I don't have a car in Dallas. I don't know why I would need that perk. But it's a great perk.
0: (laughs) Well, see, this is such an interesting segue into how the Texas Museum's are completely different in the way that they approach admissions. Because in New York, it's kind of like, okay, it seems like every museum is now $30, but then you go into the museum and you just see the museum for $30. Whereas the Texas institutions vary wildly. So in Houston, the CAM and the Menil are both completely free, which is amazing. Um, And then you have the MFAH, which... Between 2017 and 2021, prices increased from 15 to $19, if I have that right, uh, for general admission, just to see the collection. But then if you want to see a special exhibition, you have to pay a, an admission premium. So if you want to see the Pipilotti Wrist show up right now, you pay $21 all in for one ticket but if you want to see both special ticketed exhibitions that are up right now you are paying $30. So the MFA still operates on the thing that you're paying per sh- extra show you want to see, which is a which is definitely one way to do it. I mean, I I don't think I'm a fan of that. I feel like visitors could also really get confused about what they can and can't see. Um Again, same thing of if a general person is standing at the desk and you have uh, the admissions person asking, well, do you want to see this? Do you want to see this? Do you want to see this? And each of those comes with an upcharge. The standard visitor who just wanted to go to the museum for the day may not know if they want to see those. Um,
1: I would just say yes, because, I, you know, I get overwhelmed in those situations. Like, Yeah. Yeah. It's like the salad dressing. Like when I go to a restaurant and they offer me five salad dressings, I'm like, I'll take the first one. It's fine. Um, But yeah, I would get really overwhelmed in that situation and just say yes to all of it unless I've done research on exactly what I want to see, which oftentimes I don't do that because I'm just like, you know, the exhibitions at the MFAH are going to be great. I'm just going to go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and then you compare. So you also have to pay for parking mostly now the mfah back in back before they started construction of the new kinder building and the new campus they used to have a free a big free parking lot and now it's basically all paid garages save for some street parking nearby so you know that's an extra 10 ish dollars on top of each visit um a little less if you remember but then you compare that to somewhere like the dallas museum of art which is ostensibly free to see the permanent collection and some exhibitions. But then you have to pay for parking, which I think is now either 12 or $15. Don't quote me. It did – it has – unless you're a member, I guess, which is either free or reduced. Unless you're a um, member of the Nasher – Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But but then at the DMA, you do have to pay for special exhibitions. So I looked up that ticket and to see the special exhibition currently at the DMA, you'd have to pay an extra $15. So it's kind of like it's a different fee structure. Like it might be slightly cheaper for a person visiting if they drive. It's definitely cheaper for a person visiting if they walk or take public transportation. But, you know, I think... It almost feels like their admission is free to compensate for the fact that you have to pay for parking versus at the MFAH where now admission isn't free and you have to pay for parking. Um, I feel like I would be remiss to say the MFAH is free on Thursdays, um, although you do still have to pay on top for a special exhibition ticket. But you don't have to pay for... Yeah, but you don't have to pay for general admission. So, I mean, everywhere kind of has all of these qualifications. You know, the Contemporary Austin is 10 bucks. The Blanton is 15 bucks. The McNay and Sama and San Antonio are both 20 Um
1: And the Contemporary doesn't have any parking unless you go to Laguna. Um, the Blanton, on top of the admission, you still have to pay for parking at a reduced rate.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's kind of... I feel like one of the things that harms people that isn't... um really built into these costs that get written about is that kind of added that added thing of you're hit with five to ten dollars on top of whatever the actual ticket is and you know that again that's not really true in new york because you're probably either ubering or using public transport so it's either like three bucks or it's 15 bucks for an uber but that is still very realistically there even though you're not explicitly paying it to the museum garage or to like Public parking lot,
1: or for example, you're already in the area, and so that public transportation or Uber trip is built into something else that you were doing that day. You know, like it's it's like, oh, I'm I'm in this neighborhood doing this other thing. Why don't I pop over to the Met?
0: So uh, this talk about costs of uh admissions and costs of funding museums leads me to the recent news that the dallas museum of art has selected an architecture firm to redesign its building so we've been following this story for a little while now um earlier this spring they announced an open call for architecture firms then a couple months ago they announced uh six finalists I believe uh, from over 150 submissions and then um, just recently they have announced the winning architecture firm that will take on this project so leslie uh, the architecture firm is based in madrid right
1: yes it is madrid based Nieto sobejano Arquitectos.
0: so this is a firm that i wasn't particularly familiar with and based on our reporting and the announcement it seems like they don't have a ton of projects in the u.s although of course they have a lot of projects everywhere else and they've been recognized and their work has been exhibited at moma and other places um this is, I I feel like I haven't heard a lot about this from folks in Dallas, and I definitely haven't heard people in Houston talking about it. But from the renderings and from uh, what this seems like it's going to be, it's going to be a major change in renovation. I mean, it is reimagining the DMA and completely opening the building up and trying to make it a better place to see art than it currently is
1: that's great i mean i you know it's funny because we we haven't heard a lot of buzz about this in in our dallas community which is really interesting and kind of i don't know it's kind of funny but i think that this has also been something that's been in the works for so long and maybe has had a few false starts from what i understand that maybe we're all just kind of like, okay, we'll believe it when we see it. But it would be great for this this institution. The DMA is such a hard place to see art. It's so confusing. I mean, I think <laughs> this is a really terrible thing to say, but one of the things I really love about the building as it is currently is that you don't have to walk around the block to cross the street. You can just go into the DMA <laughs> yeah. and cut through. Yeah. <laughs> well, basically nice. the
0: DMA, like if it's been a while since you've been there or if you haven't ever been there – um. It's bordered on one side by the Natural Sculpture Center, on the other side by downtown, and opposite of downtown is, like, a freeway, essentially. Um, so the building runs, like, from the freeway to into downtown, and it's basically a big hallway where there are offshoots of special exhibition galleries permanent collection galleries it has this kind of split level concept which as a visitor yeah it has a big ramp uh it has a couple big ramps but it the like second third and fourth floor kind of have this split level concept that if it isn't your hometown museum and if you're not intimately familiar with its architecture it can be very confusing like as a visitor the first time I ever went to the DMA I was like where am I? Cause I was going up and down many stairwells and platforms. And I was like, I don't know how to get to where I want to
1: go. That, that building has everything. It's like every architectural element of like how to get to a floor, <laughs> how to get to level um, split level. Like it's, every, they just put it all into one building. <laughs> it's really confusing.
0: Yeah. And there are, there are places in the building that are really good to see art. Like they do have v- really varied types of galleries and they try and place exhibitions in very specific places that suit them the best Uh, people really seem to like the barrel vault galleries which is where a lot of the contemporary art is right now Um, but one of the larger things with this redesign i think is that the dma has in the next probably 20 to 40 years a lot of art coming its way part of this is there's a trifecta of collectors marguerite hoffman the Rachovskis, and dd rose who have promised essentially the bulk if not all of their collections to the museum and these are three major um, nationally recognized contemporary art collections and right now as it is the dma has nowhere to put them if they want to maintain any sort of normal rotating exhibition schedule, sure they could take away a temporary exhibition gallery, but that's not the way to do it. So one of one of the elements of this new uh, design that was chosen by uh, NSA, the firm, is this like major, uh, almost kind of like floating contemporary art gallery at the top of the museum, um, which. Is which will very much be needed. I mean, this design and the, this collection could transform uh, just public perception of the DMA as into maybe one of the more important museums for contemporary art in America.
1: Which I think that the DMA already is. It just doesn't have the building to reflect that, and it's confusing, and it's not the best visitor experience, honestly. Which I think is, you know, that's a that's an issue. That is common amongst many museums is the visitor experience being somewhat uncomfortable um and it looks like this n s a the architects um they've done a lot of things in different spaces but have' done a lot of museum buildings as well that have integrated older uh, older architecture with newer architectures that that's gonna be really interesting to see and I think another point is that this isn't just a remodel or redesign this almost feels like um like this is this is gonna be a significant change for that building i don't want to see it's not a tear down but it's not just a remodel either
0: it's a complete yeah it's it's not a tear down it's not a remodel it's not a facelift i mean it's essentially they're going to rebuild the building using its existing bones is the impression that i'm getting from this and uh the architects who were chosen, their proposal really reflected that. There were a few proposals where I was kind of like, it seems like we're starting from scratch. And also this uh, rendering looks way too big for the lot that the museum currently sits on. Um, But their building, I see the old building in the renderings of this proposal, but it's opening it up. It's making it uh, it's not, it's, it's lifting the heaviness and the closed offness of the current building. It's also giving the building an entrance, which, I mean, the museum renovated its entrances in 2015, but this, the, yeah, the downtown facing entrance isn't really an entrance and the entrance from the parking lot isn't any sort of grand entrance. And I don't necessarily think everything needs to be a wonderful, huge, um, uh, open-air entrance space. I actually think that oftentimes some of that takes away from space that could be closed-off gallery space to show the art. But entrances are important, and Leslie, like you're saying, a public perception or a visitor perception of someone, not just locals, but also people coming out of town. Like Right now, you kind of walk into the DMA and it's like, you're here, but there's no there's no awe or wonder or you can't see anything or you see the cafe, um, dining room with huge pieces by Rauschenberg and, uh, other folks. But it's still just like, it's, it doesn't have any impact, at least on me.
1: It's true. It's true. And then, you know, to find the the ticket desk is confusing to figure out where the galleries are is confusing. And sometimes you know, as you're walking up that ramp, all the galleries on each side and sometimes, they're closed for, for reinstall and rehang. And then you've got the, like, stanchions. I mean, it's just a very weird building right now.
0: So I, I, I feel like both of us, and I, I would assume people in the Dallas art community um, are excited to see this. I know it's going to become much more of a big deal once the museum actually closes. Like, it it seems like in order to complete this project, or at least if it's completed the way the renderings show it, this is going to be a multi-year project that may see the museum either partially or fully closed for years, which will be a really big deal when it
1: happens. That will be a really big deal. Yeah. Is there a timeline on that, Brandon? Have we Has that been advertised or publicized? We
0: don't have a timeline at this point, but as soon as we have one, um, we will let you all know because, I mean, we're following this very closely and... I would have to think that if they have architects chosen and a concept design ready to go, that they wouldn't want to sit on that for too long.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think it will also be really interesting to see what programming DMA does in the meantime, because it is a very common thing, you know, when when institutions are doing renovation or you know, remodel or whatever, um, that you see a lot of programming that happens off site. And I wonder if that will mean exhibitions in some way or if that will just be programming. Like, what is what is that going to look like in the interim?
0: Yeah. Well, when we figure out anything about that, uh, you can be sure to check out a news article on Glass Tire because we'll let you know. And with that, uh, that is our Art Dirt Summer Art News recap. Um there's plenty more going on even though it is the dog days of August. Uh people are still putting on shows. News is still happening. People are still showing art. So check out our event listings. Check out our news wire to follow everything that's happening across Texas. And we'll hit you back in 2 weeks with another podcast, but until then, go see some art.
1: Go see some art.
0: This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.